the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Hi, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. And uh, happy Halloween month, everybody. I started thinking my Halloween costume like back in April, I think. So I'm, I'm always gearing up for this, whether I'm just dressing up at my house for myself, um, you know, or, or, or I go out. Who knows? It, it's the pandemic times. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, I hope I'm I've been wearing a mask for like, you know, so many months in a row. I just I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it for Halloween this year. It's bumming me out just thinking about how many masks are going to be incorporated yeah, in yeah. Halloween costumes. You know, it is what it is. But happy Halloween month. Yep. But uh, that's not going to stop us from doing what we've done in prior years. And that's taking the time to do one extra episode in all horror movies for the month of October. And I think we're kicking it off in style here with a um, much beloved now i think sequel and that's uh william peter blatty's exorcist 3 and this was a movie that i didn't grow up watching i discovered it much later in life and i was so happy you brought this one up to to do justin i i love it so much i love it as much as the exorcist yeah i think this is not one i don't think that i saw when it first came out because i wasn't the biggest exorcist fan when i was younger but I think maybe like 15 years ago, I saw this one 10 or 15 years ago and was like really shocked at how good it was and how well staged it was and how actually legitimately creepy it was. And it's not one that you hear too many people talk about. I mean, it does. There's a lot of love for it now. And there certainly was a, you know, a really nice uh, release on Blu-ray with a lot of special features, thankfully for us, uh, for this episode. But I think it's still one that not a lot of people uh, have seen simply because if you're if you're not a just a straight horror movie fan, sometimes delving in the sequels can be kind of arduous. But this is certainly one I think if you're if you can tolerate The Exorcist, if that's your thing. I know some people <laughs> shy. You know, they're just like, no, man, I'm not gonna. I can't get into those movies, and I totally understand that. I kind of feel like I was the same way for a while, like. And I don't necessarily feel like The Exorcist is a, is a pleasant watch. You mean, is it the subject matter or is it the religious I think it's factor? the religious factor, the okay. subject matter. And like, you know, there's the the exorcism is a, you know, it is a very like uh, taxing thing to witness. But I think a lot of it's, yeah, it's just the religion, you know, part, which for me is never really, that wasn't really the, the part of it to me that was freaky. But I think there is something about... Um, for some people yeah yeah, and i think something too yeah it's like almost feels like blasphemous to to watch something that takes an interest in the darker side and evil forces and i can certainly see how that scared people off but i think also that was what made it such a success and why it still is a pretty freaky watch to this day the original exorcist oh yeah completely i love watching the exorcist and watching exorcist 3 i mean we'll briefly hit on exorcist 2 the heretic but Watching the first and the third one bookended together, man, that's fun. Let me just tell you. Yeah, these movies fit together really well, tonally and, you know, in a way, and story-wise and, and logic-wise, they, they really fit together 
really nicely, but we'll get into that. There's a lot to talk about with this movie. There's a huge backstory um, to it. We'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into the development, a little bit of who the writer and director of, uh, of Exorcist Three and the original writer of The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty. We'll get in a little bit to his life and probably, I hope, talk about some of our favorite scenes and also kind of what makes this movie stand out from other horror movies, especially in 1990 yeah. and just where horror was at that time. Yeah, and, and definitely in, in that same vein, talking about the cast, you know, because this is, again, a, a horror film, but cast a little bit differently than than your typical horror film, especially coming, you know, out of the 80s. I think it was a sort of a nice breath of fresh air. So we'll get into that, too. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I love talking about this movie and thinking about it for the last two weeks. Yeah. It's, it's been kind of fun. Um, but after Exorcist 3 talk, we'll get into our picks of the week. I also picked a movie that came out the same year as Exorcist 3 with a very similar plot, and that's The First Power with Lou Diamond Phillips. That was a good call to do that one. And ironically enough, this was not planned. I also did a movie from 1990 in the spirit of doing a sequel, and I chose Child's Play 2. I'm glad you picked that movie. <laughs> I think I've brought it up a time or two before. Yeah. You helped kind of boost my reappreciation for that sequel. Yeah. Uh, there's just, you know, that franchise went off into a different direction. <laughs> so it's, as, uh, it's, it's easy to forget too. that child's play two is, you know, still trying to pay tribute to the, the first, a lot of franchises, you know, do go off uh, on tangents and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't depending on your vibe. I think this was right before child's play did that. Yeah. Well, as always, we'll uh, round things out with a Murray moment. But before we get into our first terrifying clip from The Exorcist 3, Lindsay, can you give us just a brief lowdown on what is the what is the plot of, of this serial killer slash demonic film? Oh, my goodness. As much as I might try to boil this movie down into a concise thing, I, I feel like I'm still going to miss a few things in a synopsis, but... What I would say is that overall, this sequel follows the police lieutenant who investigated a murder in the original Exorcist film. He's now looking into multiple murders by a person known as the Gemini Killer, and his leads take him into a psychiatric ward, which leads to more clues than he bargained for. It tests his faith, and possibly a familiar face he once knew comes back to not even haunt him, but straight up confront him right to his face. Some creepy stuff. It's a twisted one, that's for sure, and I feel like it's a multi-watch. It's not one that you want to get up and walk away from because you're going to miss something. A lot of dialogue, a lot of exposition. Let's uh, go to our first clip from Exorcist 3. We'll be right back. May the Lord be in your heart help you to confess your sins. I have a, a scrupulous conscience, Father. This need to confess uh, so many things if i step on two straws in the shape of a cross i feel that i have to confess it it torments me we'll try to make a good confession and remember christ forgives us all of our sins only little things nothing 17 of them father the first was that waitress uh, 
near Candlestick Park. I cut her throat and watched her bleed. She bled a great deal. It's a problem that I'm working on, Father. All this bleeding. Well, before we get into Exorcist 3, just wanted to preface it a little bit with its original creator because uh, William Peter Blatty just goes so much hand-in-hand with both of these movies, and Exorcist 3 is presented as William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. I I think it's only fair to talk a little bit about William Peter Blatty, like where he came from and how he went down the path of becoming the creator of The Exorcist. And when you go into his history, you know, you certainly find out where he's from, how he grew up. He he came from kind of a meager beginning and went to high school, college, all on scholarships and really proved to be enlightened at an early age or just kind of prolific writer. He certainly grew up with a hardcore Catholic background. And that's no surprise when, you know, later in your life, you write The Exorcist. But it's Not how he started out, and it might be hard for some people to believe, but he started out writing comedies. Um, Before that, there was this crazy thing that happened to him. Uh, So he'd been working like service industry jobs while doing writing on the side, writing like a comic here or there, being kind of a humorist. And he was on the Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life, in 61, and ended up uh, winning $10,000 with another woman. So he won like $5,000 to you know, just have in his life. So he decided to quit his job and devote his life to writing, which $5,000, I don't know what that would equate to in 61, but I feel like it would probably be a fair chunk of change. And he most certainly did. He went on to write numerous comedies. One of my favorites was the the second Pink Panther movie, A Shot in the Dark. I love that movie. I grew up watching it. There's also The Great Bank Robbery. Um, there was a Rock Hudson movie. Um, he did, what was the name of that, with um, Julie Andrews' uh, Darling Lily. So he was known for doing these comedies in the late 60s. But around that time, too, that genre was starting to dry out, and there just wasn't a market for it anymore. And it's not like he was just stuck in writing humor. If you hear interviews with him or see his writing, even if it's something serious, there's always kind of a twinge of humor. So in 71, he it took him a couple months. I think it was like nine months. It took him a little while to get started really into The Exorcist. But The Exorcist came out in 71 and basically overnight just turned him into a number one bestseller. After the book came out, was no um, kind of surprise that it should turn into a movie. And in 73, uh, the movie The Exorcist came out and just kind of changed the landscape for horror. We had already had some slow burn movies like Rosemary's Baby that were really jarring for people. But The Exorcist amped up the game. This was not only taking on um, certain taboos that we, you know, that made people uncomfortable, but it was a movie that didn't really hold back. So this became kind of the first modern blockbuster, one could say. So immediately after the success of The Exorcist, the studio wanted to make a sequel. But William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, didn't really have any interest in doing it. So Blatty really doesn't mince words about this the studio offered him i don't know how much but he said like an unspeakable amount of money um to to let him have the rights and they 
certainly did make a sequel in 77, and that was The Exorcist II, The Heretic. That movie, while it is a favorite of some... It didn't. It did well at the box office, but it, um, it is widely, you know, not the favorite of the of the Exorcist lineage. So, kind of in response to that, and uh, Blatty wasn't exactly happy with the Heretic, but he also didn't have anything to do with it. He wanted to do another sequel, so he brought it up to the studio, and because the sequel didn't do that well, they really didn't have any interest in it. So. Blatty said, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and write a book, another sequel to this, which is going to be my version of what I think the sequel to The Exorcist should have been. And in 1983, the book Legion came out, and that was a huge deal, did really well, um, became another bestseller, and that kind of set us up for what would be The Exorcist 3 six, seven years later down the road. I think that's pretty wild that he went from a comedy writer to this one of the top name in horror and then uh, went and wrote another book that was equal, you know, not as equally successful as The Exorcist, but Legion continuing on his story, clearly something that fascinated him. You know, otherwise, I don't think he would have went back to those characters and continued on. And I, re- I really I haven't I, re- I haven't read the I'll, I'll admit I haven't read uh, the book Legion. I have read the original Exorcist book. I have not read Legion either. I did learn that the reason he decided to focus on the character of Lieutenant Kinderman in Exorcist 3 was because he liked the character so much from the book and from the movie that he felt that that character deserved a movie of his own. And that actor from Exorcist 1, Lee Cobb, did pass away in that interim. And I think Blatty loved that actor and thought he was perfect for it, but um, obviously was not going to be able to be in the third one. So they went with George C. Scott, which he was happy with. I think he just really had a had a major love for Lee Cobb in that first one. And and that's I, that's why I love so much about Exorcist Three is that the the main focus of the story it's not another story about another person like a kid or something who got possessed and a family that's seeking counsel. You know, it's a it's a continuation of a character that wasn't a huge part of Exorcist. And I do love that the character, like these years of working crime and dealing with so much evil from humans has, has kind of worn on him. The way he reacts to things I like in The Exorcist 3, where Kinderman, you know, even when we see the crime scenes, you know, he there's kind of a pause before he, you know, he, that moment where he knows he's going to have to like look at the at a body that's been mutilated, you know, it's covered up, and we, the audience, don't actually see the the horror of of what's underneath the cover. But you know, his reaction to it, it's still you can kind of see in his face, even though he's he's seen many many murder sites and and, and homicides, there's still that sort of ghastliness of like Ugh, the the evil that that someone can you know inflict on another person is is there on his face. It, it is something that's really evident, and it's also something that is uh, a drastic difference from, like, tonally, kind of, uh, from The Exorcist 1. This story really feels like it's trying to communicate the same feel, eeriness, that sort of thing, without being overt, without throwing pea soup in your face. This is pulling back the cover and s- watching the reaction of the person, like you said versus seeing what it is. This is very much a, we'll eventually show you, but it's leading up to it. It's creating this eerie feeling through discussion, 
and circumstance and the story versus blood spatter everywhere. Yeah. Even though, and and that's not to say that we don't see that. We certainly do, but it is very thought out and very strategic, and it's all about building up the tension in this movie. And The Exorcist is an extremely slow burn. Whereas Exorcist 3, I feel like it's something that, you know, we had seen time and time again in the 80s, you know, something that we're familiar with, the the serial killer genre. But where this movie takes a left turn is that we do have the Kinderman character, who's a much older character also that we would see in horror movies of the time, you know, coming out of the 80s, you know, it was always young faces. But then also this sort of real sadness that this character holds in his kinship with Father Dyer, and they're both lifting each other up, trying to cheer each other up by hanging out once a year um, to sort of like remember the death of Father Karras from Exorcist One. And these meetings, when they have these interactions, it's where I think this movie is like the real gripping stuff of like what gets you involved in the characters and where the writing is its strongest because. Um, they're very relatable, but you also get a sense of like where they are in their lives. You know, they've seen a lot of stuff. They've been through a lot of stuff. And so they're not very reactionary, even though they're dealing with uh, some pretty heavy stuff in this movie. They're just like slow, methodical way of that. They, you know, that they talk to each other and that they deal with a situation. And the scenes play out a little bit long, but I don't find them to be boring or arduous in any way because the characters are are so rich and they come off the page are so fascinating. I'm glad you brought their relationship up because one really smart thing that Blatty did with the writing of this is obviously one, establishing their friendship, but also two, throwing in this tonal thing that he does with humor in this movie. And there's, I mean, there's nothing funny about an exorcist, but um, the humor that is sprinkled in this movie, and it's mainly coming from either Father Dyer or Kinderman, but we see it so much between their character interplay. And like you said before, you know, they are friends and they share this mutual heartache for the loss of their friend, but they do throw in these real moments whether it is, you know, razzing each other over something small, you know, like Father Dyer wanting to read the fashion pages instead of scripture, you know, that Kinderman kind of like pokes at him for. And it seems almost like it could be out of place in a horror movie because it happens so often, these strange comic moments. But Blatty's doing this intentionally to make us feel at ease, to like these characters and also understand how deep their friendship goes. It's not like a quick little thing. I like that. I like that we take it takes its time in a sense that even when Kinderman is at the office, you know, one of his coworkers is like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to catch a picture show, you know, and then he's like, what are you seeing? The movie takes the time to kind of set up like oh, I'm going to go see uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And then. Ooh, you know, that's setting us up for something in, later in the movie, too. Reason for it to, to take its time and emphasize that that was the movie that they saw. But then also seeing them, you know, come out of the cinema and sit down and kind of talk about a movie like how, you know, you and I do or like, you know, how a lot of friends do. You know, you go see a movie and then you get a bite or you get a drink. And and then, you know, that turns into you talking about your lives and, and what's kind of what you're feeling and, you know, general friendships do. And and especially when it's like one-on-one, when it's not a, a group of people, you know, you're just, you get more personal and you get more intimate. And I really love that because once that is removed from the audience about 40 minutes into the movie, the movie gets, you, 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 you take comfort in that. And when that, when that's removed, it makes it very tense because we know that 
from here on out, it, there's going to be a lot of darkness. Like we no longer have the, the one little sense of hope or like happiness or like this, like lifting each other up is like removed. And then Kinderman is on his own. It really does make this pit of despair kind of happen in, in my, in my stomach when that turn happens for Kinderman. Like every, every single time I feel it for him. And I, I really do think it's because, uh, you know, I've spent so much time with him and I'm, you know, I'm invested in his, his aggressive kind of like mean way of speaking when he's not actually mad. It's just how he talks all the time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I've, I've grown to love him, this gruff old man, like I, I love him. And so to see him kind of, I mean, he's always kind of like, he's not losing himself at any point, but he's slowly questioning like what's happening and feeling a little bit more unsure and his friend is taken away from him and things start to not make sense. And then the way that they make sense don't really fit his idea of what is logical. I just love the evolution of this story and how we are set at ease. And then we're immediately like, shoved off of a pedestal as if we understood anything because we don't anymore. Aside from the story and, and the characters and how well designed, you know, it is a very, again, like a smart, funny script with, with rich characters. But to take a second, because this is, you know, Halloween month, it's legitimately on its own a scary movie. I mean, there's some genuine scares in this. I mean, there's certain a few jump scares where the music ramps up. But there's uh, at least a handful of scenes that that really kind of creep me out. And then also, again, this sort of like foreboding sense of dread and, and imagery that's slowly pushing Kinderman's character to the edge of, of, of his own sanity. Whether it's just in the creaks in the floor or the shadows or a gust of wind, you think is maybe was that a gust of wind or was it like a weird child laughing that just made this paper blow up was that a sign of something they're just these little eerie things that happen and you know is it your mind imagining it is it really happening it sets you off guard it really starts to be unsettling in this movie and one thing that um, is brilliant though about how this kind of ramps up is like we said you don't see a lot of the things that are happening uh, you see the aftermath you're shown the right before and then you're shown the aftermath and that's strategic and it is getting to where we get to the end of the movie and we see everything. When I was looking this movie up and kind of reading about it, I didn't see a lot of comparisons of this movie to Hitchcock, which I find kind of odd because there are a lot of like Hitchcockian vibes about this movie and that's like not showing everything you know like leaving things up to the imagination like doing the MacGuffin where you show the medical instrument that you know the audience sees it and then you know we know later on that's going to make an appearance because there was a reason why the they you know did a close-up on that particular medical weapon instrument yeah yeah exactly and then at the end you know kind of revealing a lot more of the plot you know we're kind of in the dark you know, suspense wise. And then later on, you know, like a big portion of the, the plot is revealed and kind of like, you know, old school movie technique. I couldn't agree more with that. And since we're talking about what makes this movie creepy, one thing that is glaringly obvious to me is the score, like all of the music, if you want to call it that for this movie, like the original exorcist had a theme and that is in the very beginning and the very end of Exorcist 3. But that was also 
put in by the studio. It was not intended. The score to this movie, which was done by Barry Devorson, who did um, In the City, which is the theme song from The Warriors, which was another episode we did, and and countless other movies, too, including The Ninth Configuration, which is another William Peter Blatty movie, Night of the Creeps, too. Just very well-versed guy, especially in pop music. But there's no real theme to this movie, and it's just these like kind of noises, voices, a lot of synth. I don't feel like that there are any stringed instruments. It's just a lot of synth, a lot of synthesizers, very layered and textured and dark. It, it, it is equally as unsettling as what you're watching and the story that's being revealed to you. And the noises and music, if you want to call, I want to, I, I want a better word than, than music or score, because it is really just ambient noise around you and what's happening. Like sometimes it just feels like it's this animal growling, you know, yeah. in, in some parts. And it's so friggin' eerie. I love it. In regards to it being scary, is it like, unlike Exorcist 1, which I think takes a good hour, you know, when you're watching The Exorcist, it, it's a good hour into the movie before things start getting a little creepy. There's a lot of investigation going on and there's a lot of the mom kind of, you know, kind of in doubt and trying to figure things out and other stuff that's going on in her career and her life that we get all this backstory of. Whereas this one, we're kind of like immediately just the first creepy, the confessional scene where the killer is, you know, confessing to a crime and the voice, it gets me every time. I mean, you have, you have someone whisper in like a real, like insidious sort of tone. It just, it, it gets me every time. It always creeps me out. And that scene to me right away, I was like, okay, this is a, you know, watching it by myself in the dark, like, where's the dog? You know, you need to jump up here on the couch with me. One thing I find watching that scene, hearing that weird voice that I don't even know what gender it is, but I'm trying to imagine what that person looks like. And I'm, it's almost like I'm waiting to see it. And I like, I don't want to see it. And you don't see it. And that is what, that's what creates the horror is you don't see it. It's brilliant. Before that scene, you know, you do see someone that you see later and it's another thing where it's like, why, why, you know, it holds just long enough on this old woman who's being helped by another old woman holds just long enough for you to be like, wait, was that the person that was talking to him? Like, why did they focus on that person? Yeah. And it gives you these clues. And that's what Blatty does is he's not serving the answer to you like really easily. Yeah. He's, he's gingerly guiding you, but wants you to be able to sort it out yourself. And I think that's another reason why this movie is more than just a one-time watch. Yeah, I I felt like the second time around when I because it had been a while since I'd seen this, and the second time around, the you know I was watching it more for story and and for for substance. You know, I know everything that's going to happen. There's still just a description of some of the crimes is what makes it so disturbing. Hearing the description of a crime versus seeing it, for some reason to me, is like so much more creepy. Yeah, that's why you can get creeped out just watching Dateline or Forensic Files. Like, even if you're not seeing it, just hearing the story, it's terribly creepy. You know, this was a movie that William Peter Blatty took all the way to the end. I mean, he, he you know, this was his baby, and he wasn't an experienced director, but he was certainly working with um, experienced actors and the story was there. The script was there. The words were there. So the movie feels like very confidently directed. The studio involvement in this movie is 
pretty crazy. I mean, the backstory of like them wanting to change this movie like at the last minute. I mean, really changing the tone and, and some of the story, honestly. Like it, it was like not like this thing where like, hey, can you cut it a little bit? You know, the studio wasn't like, hey, you know, maybe cut cut a little bit here, cut a little bit here. Maybe, you know, add a couple of jump scares. I mean, they were like, no, um, you straight need to make this like more focused on there has to be an exorcism. I mean, there was not an exorcism in the original script. De- definitely supernatural evil, but not the, an exorcism wasn't performed. And then the studio is like, nope, we need an exorcism in the movie because we're going to call it Exorcist 3. We're not going to call it Legion. And, you know, you can imagine that was took William Peter Blatty back like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, that kind of changes a lot of stuff here. Yeah, yeah. So this is the point when you completely wrap a movie and you have a cut of the movie in 10 days you show it to the studio and they just go yeah i need you to uh basically change the entire tone of everything is that is that okay with you and it's not not that it's uh you know bad it's just um it's not going to really hold that much interest in uh in an, in an audience and we need butts in the seat we need to call it exorcist 3 so we need an exorcist and i know you know we had tried before to get uh jason miller who played father Karras, and he wasn't available but he's available now so here's what we want just stick with me here um, we want you to reshoot the entire ending and everything to do with the Gemini killer played by Brad Dorif, who's already filmed his like epic, amazing, astonishing monologues that he should have gotten an Oscar for. We're going to need you to refilm all of that with um, Jason Miller. Is that cool? Um, because, yeah, we're going to do that. So that's what Blatty had to do. He had to reshoot everything that he had already shot and he can't really like argue with the studio. I mean, he he did. He made it known that he wasn't necessarily a fan of this. And, you know, having to explain this to Brad Dorf, who was just told after he did this, sorry, bro, you're not going to be in the movie at all. I can't uh, how how that must have hurt. And Blatty saying it really wasn't you. I loved everything about your performance. I my hands are tied right now because there are millions of dollars writing on this and all they're thinking about is getting people to see this. And we have to think about people didn't like, you know, The Exorcist 2 and we really have to think about amping up the game. And the original ending of the movie is, you know, depending on how you feel about the movie, the original ending of, of the movie fits tonally with everything that happens in Exorcist 3. As the ending changed, it is much bigger. The special effects are completely amped up. I mean, it's straight up explosions. And and there is very much an exorcist that happens. Not that it feels like it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. It just, there is an obvious difference. Yeah, and it, well, and also, too, like the, the priest in the Exorcist 3 for the exorcism it's almost like an action movie. Like it was very, I mean, you know, they have him badass in the exorcist with the shot, with the fog and everything, you know, and he's got the briefcase, but in this, it's much more, it feels like action movie type, you know, he's coming in to defeat evil and we don't really, and we don't have a backstory on him. We don't really know too much about him. It's just like, he's coming in to like battle it out and and we're getting ready to see a battle scene. And we already 
you know, we, we've experienced an exorcism from the first movie. So, of course, this one is like, we got to make it shorter, but more intense. And with that, too. So, like I said, you know, Jason Miller, Father Karras, he's playing now the Gemini killer slash Father Karras or Patient X, as he's referred to in the movie. Brad Dorff was recalling this experience and saying that Jason Miller did do this performance, but he couldn't hold up for one reason or another, couldn't really pull it off completely. So Brad Dorff was brought back in to fill in the gaps of where it didn't work with Jason Miller. And, you know, if you don't know this watching the movie, you're just going to think that it's this interplay that it's, you know, one character, but this is the character that is inside this body. And it makes sense within the reality of the movie. But can you imagine being Blatty on set and being told you have all of these things to fix and we're going to need you to rewrite like right now? Like that's what he had to do. So you not only are you rewriting, but then you're rewriting what you've already rewritten because Jason Miller couldn't do everything that, that was kind of required for that role. And, you know, I, I don't think that it comes through or anything like that. I think he does a fantastic job. Everybody does. Yeah, I think, like, given the task of, like, having to rewrite, like, a, a subplot, you know, and then, like, have the character be, like, two actors are playing the, the same character and, like, something that you've already shot, I mean, that seems insane, but, uh, you know, I think a lesser writer would have not been able to make that competently done where it was like clear. But I, I do think that it, the the ending is better because having uh, Kinderman have to shoot, you know, his friend that he's been mourning for 15 years. It's a really powerful ending. And just like you said, I think a lesser writer would not have been able to pull it off and it would have felt rushed. The way that Blatty was able to do it, it just... It seemed natural, and to learn that it was all of this was an afterthought was totally impressive because I buy the story that's happening. I, I buy what's happening. And, you know, for horror movies or for psychological thrillers or mysteries, and this this movie is very much a mystery and psychological thriller with some horror sprinkled in, there's always that moment where everything is explained, you know? And this is one movie where... I know that it's happening, but it doesn't annoy me or I don't feel cheated because it feels like it, it, it. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this moment for the killer to explain everything to me. And the performance behind all of it is stellar. And this movie, I think, came out the same year as Silence of the Lambs. Or one, one year before it came out. One year before, okay. And just like in thinking about that and thinking about, hmm, this killer versus... Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. I just, I mean, it is night and day, and I, I just want to, I, I want to hand Brad Dorff an Oscar for this performance because he's incredible. Well, let's let's stop there. We'll go to another clip, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about those performances. There I was, so awfully dead in that electric chair. I didn't like it. Would you? It's upsetting. There was still so much killing to do, and there I was, in the void, without a body. But then along came, well, you know, my friend, one of them, those others there, the cruel ones, the master. And he thought... 
that my work should continue, but in this body, in this body in particular, in fact. Ooh, let's call it revenge. A certain matter of an exorcism, I think, in which your friend Father Karras expels certain parties from the body of a child. Certain parties were not pleased, to say the least. To say the very least. And so my friend, the master, devised this pretty little scheme as a way of getting back of creating a stumbling block, a scandal, a horror to the eyes of all men who seek faith using the body of this saintly priest as an instrument of, well, you know my work. But the main thing is the torment of your friend Father Karras, as he watches while I rip and cut and mutilate the innocent, his friends, and again and again and on and on. He is inside with us. He will never get away. His pain won't end. So we might have spent the last part of discussion one discussing the humbling experience of changing the ending of your movie once it's completed. And, you know, feel however you want about either version of of the ending of Exorcist 3. But one thing that holds strong is the entire cast of this movie. There's no one wasted in it. George C. Scott was no stranger to horror films. You know, he'd done Firestarter, he did The Changeling. But in this movie, and I think this was the last role he did where he was like the main marquee actor, a good place to kind of bookend a career anyway. His presence in this movie is so huge, especially that loud, quiet, loud stuff that he does where it doesn't feel like Al Pacino yelling. It feels much more subtle. You know, it feels... um, like he's not screaming exposition. It's just like he gets very angry, gets out a little bit of frustration, but then he like dials it back in, kind of like a very old man, angry old man vibe. <laughs> it's again, it's it's kind of wild to me to think of this as nineteen ninety, you know, horror movie because it, it it was just so against the grain of like you know having some guy in his sixties play like the the lead lead character. It is a very bold move to do that. One thing I learned about him on the set was that he was pretty much a king of of one takes. Somehow that is not surprising to me, either in his character or as just the person, George C. Scott, just very confident in his, his ability, knowing when something works, he'd been around the block forever. It is not surprising to me at all. And also being an actor that doesn't mince words. I know with the the ending of of the film, he was not a fan of the reshoots and had many sarcastic quips to say, but yet was a complete professional and, you know, went through with it. He wasn't going to make a big deal about it, but he wasn't exactly a fan of reshooting the entire ending. I think my favorite George C. Scott movie is Hardcore. You know, I'm a big Paul Schrader fan, but 
that movie is have have you seen hardcore i haven't no it's like him going into the, like the underworld of like the porn industry trying to find his daughter that ran away and he's like the super like uptight kind of like angry conservative white dude um that sounds like i would really like that movie <laughs> it's uh it's it's pretty dark and you know it's it's doesn't really pull any punches but he i, I don't know it's interesting he, he took some very interesting roles he was certainly an actor that my parents knew about and, and was someone of that generation that they had grown up with. And I certainly knew who he was. I know I had seen Patton. It just wasn't like a movie of, of my speed. And he's certainly the best thing about The Changeling to me. I That and um, Firestarter. I got to rewatch Firestarter. I haven't seen that in... Man, it's been forever. If that's on you know TBS, TNT, I, I won't turn it off. Yeah. I'm a fan of that one. Opposite George C. Scott, Brad Dorff, his role in this, you had mentioned before we went to a clip that he should have been nominated for an Oscar. And, and I, I do agree with you. It's it's a kind of it's a shame that he didn't get recognized for this. And I mean, he certainly has gotten tons and tons of work. And, but I think being associated and I, I think a lot of actors have said this, the problem with being associated with horror films and that you know, you get stuck in, in that world. They joke sometimes like, oh, it's just one up from pornography, you know, so you don't get the respect that uh, other actors get when they're doing um, dramatic pictures, even when it's a big, gigantic, big budget studio picture like Ex- Ex- Exorcist 3. I hope that one day that that changes because I do think that it is unwarranted. You know, I, I understand like sometimes, I you know what, I don't, I don't, because you could say that about any genre type picture you know but if you're putting in a good performance you're putting in good performance and brad dorff has uh, for a while been kind of pigeonholed as a character actor and while he you know is good at playing the kind of off-kilter crazy guy he's so good at what he does and it's it's not like he hasn't been different variations of of these characters uh i think with this one in particular being able to be this kind of human demon hybrid but having real human emotions during it you know even if they're on the more evil side let's say but he does even have a twinge of humor in his dialogue and part of that is blatty and how an actor can communicate that humor through the dialogue is super important and not everybody would be able to do that but i think brad dorf has always had that ability to do that and i think most well known he's he's known as the voice of chucky from child's play and he does it well he's amazing and he's uh i think if you are a voice of a character and you can be that recognized that there's obviously something in the performance of your voice that's that's saying a lot about you as an actor and if your physicality if your movements facial movements everything uh your physical presence can uh, evoke that same response that's something special yeah he reminds me of a lot of like character actor lance henriksen like both of these guys um you know they show up in big budget studio pictures but then also in like lower budgeted often genre sci-fi horror movies um but you never really feel like they're phoning in their performance it's like they're nine times out of 10 seems like they're adding more to the character than it was probably on the page. Their performance is always like, kind of like jump out at you, you know, even if it's a movie that's not that great. Yeah. I think you're right about that. I hadn't thought about the Lance Hendrickson comparison, but I can see that. I was just trying to think of someone else who's like, 
in a bunch of movies, but also kind of comes from that nose to the grindstone, like actor where you're like, I'm working actor, I'm a working actor, you know, I'll, I'm not going to turn down any jobs, but even if it's a <laughs> kind of a crappy role, I'm going to make the most of it and like get in there and, you know, do some good work. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that. You were mentioning earlier before the clip about Silence of the Lambs and I find it wild that just, you know, one year later, you know, kind of talking about Brad Dwarf not being nominated one year later, like Silence of the Lambs kind of sweeps all the major awards and kind of makes horror history because of it was the first time a horror movie had been given that that kind of like prestigious award. And I wonder if the movie was called Legion, if that would have made a difference to the Academy, if it wasn't, you know, tied to like a franchise, like a part three type horror movie. I bet you're right. I bet that if it were called Legion, this movie would have had a different avenue. I've maybe gotten more recognition, but I, I think it would have changed a lot for for it. You know, I will say I know he's only in it for half the movie, but I really love Father Dyer, played by Ed Flanders in this movie. How he plays off of George C. Scott is just really equal, matches him, but without the, uh, he kind of tones him down. He evens him out. And I like that the movie starts on him and we already know that there's a, like this heaviness, you know, but there's also realness set in with his character. I just really love, uh, Ed Flanders in this movie. He really captures that sensitive character that you kind of hope would be someone who's uh, of a religious faith you know, the father that you could have a, a consultation with, you know, and, and he's like not judging, you know, he's, he's listening. And yeah, again, the back and forth that he has with George C. Scott, like their scenes are, are among my favorites in the movie. I think they're the most interesting and they really listen to each other. It feels like they're having a real conversation. Um, it doesn't feel so staged. Like a lot of times exposition can kind of be in movies where, you know, it's like the movie stops and they got to have this conversation because it's explaining part of the story. And it never feels like that. It feels like I'm, you know, watching two old friends pull up a chair and and have a <laughs> cup of coffee and like kind of talk about what's going on in their lives. Yeah. And for two male actors of this generation, you could have, you know, kind of this competition with who's going to take over a scene. And it doesn't it doesn't exist between them. They're really they're just such pros at it. And I love I love their scenes together. And Jason Miller, we can't forget about Jason Miller. It's interesting having him be a part of this because he you know, he's not like a, a guy that you see show up in a bunch of movies. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, he wasn't doing like he wasn't in a bunch of stuff between The Exorcist and Exorcist 3, I don't think. He was in, let's see, he was in The Ninth Configuration, the other um, William Peter Blatty movie. I know that. Um, but he was in a fair amount of one-off movies, maybe movies you had heard of, maybe not. Toy Soldiers, he was in that. And then he was in some movies in the 90s after um, after Exorcist 3. If the studio is forcing your hand to redo the ending of your movie at least they were able to get the an actor from the original exorcist and also have him you know show up and kind of do this part that was just written on the spot and put in a performance that you know again like you said there were some problems like he couldn't quite match the energy that brad dwarf was giving but at the same time you got to give him credit for coming in and in at least lending his face and his likeness, this uh, legacy, this story, you know, and have them connect, you know, 15 years later. 
Yes, it it makes complete sense. And I forget if I said this before, but they did try to get him before they went with Brad Dorff. He wasn't available at the time. So it wasn't exactly an afterthought to yeah. include him. Um, I, I do like that he's included in this version, the theatrical version. Um, I do love his contribution and his professionalism along with all of these other actors. He's primarily, I think, was a stage actor and also a playwright, pretty well-respected playwright. So I think that's why maybe we don't see him in giant blockbusters. I think he was offered a taxi driver, if I remember correctly. He was offered that role um, and turned it down. I forget what role he turned it down for, but he was offered it. That's wild. That's, for the most part, the primary cast. But if you watch this movie, there are so many little bit parts of actors that are familiar and you might totally miss them, you know, if you're not paying attention. Probably the most well-known out of everyone, uh, there's many familiar faces in the purgatory dream sequence that George C. Scott's having, uh, namely Samuel L. Jackson shows up right in there and does have one line. Um, but yeah, you could totally miss him. And right after him, like a half a beat after him, is uh, Christine Sutherland, who is uh, Joyce Summers from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She also has one line. And uh, Fabio, if you're familiar with him from, I guess, like pop culture, like he was a model, male model. Yeah, Yeah. the, the other guy with him in his scene was also the most popular male model at the time, too. Um Two, two future moms in, in mom roles, uh, Tyra Farrell, who we talked about in Boys in the Hood. She is a, is a nurse in one scene and also the mom from Welcome to the Dollhouse, another episode that we did, Angela uh, Petropento. She's also the wailing woman in the church who discovers a dead body. I always, it's always fun to see little bit parts in movies, like when we're going back, especially someone like Samuel Jackson, who like, you know, was like four years later, like everybody would know who Samuel Jackson was, but to, to play like a, a tiny little bit role. And didn't you say he uh, did this specifically because he wanted to be in an exorcist movie? Yeah. Yeah. William Peter Blatty asked him, you know, what, what makes you want this part so much? And he said, I want to be in an exorcist movie. And also Patrick Ewing is in the purgatory scene too. And I guess he was friends with Blatty. So that's how he, he got that little part. Man, that can we just talk about that dream sequence for a moment? It is friggin' it's a, bizarre. It's a very, very elaborate. And I think if you are familiar with Exorcist 2, which has quite a few fantasy sequences, when this sequence, this dream sequence starts, you're like, what is happening? You know, it's it's a very like... <laughs> Are they, you know, going into those waters? But I think it works. You know, dream it sequences does, yeah. can always be kind of tricky. You know, they can come off kind of cheesy or just, especially on a rewatch, you know, like a dream sequence, you know, go get, a, <laughs> go get a drink, you know, but it's, it's, it's a unique and interesting little part of the movie. Something fun in this scene, if you notice, there's, including Patrick Ewing and Fabio, there's numerous people who have these giant, gorgeous sets of wings on their back, you know, like angel wings, because they're supposed to be in purgatory. This is where where everyone's hanging out before it's decided where they're going. Um, so these wings, when Blatty told the art department what he wanted them to look like, I guess he described them as statuesque. And so the art department brought them to the set and they were like statues. They look like cement. And Blatty said, 
yeah, that wasn't what I had in mind at all. Like more like feathers, <laughs> yeah. feathers and stuff. And they, and I guess overnight they, if you look at these wings, they are perfect. They are like immaculate. And they did all of that overnight. They had only a few short hours to make it look as good as it does. And it's, it's pretty impressive knowing that. Yeah, it's such a bizarre little sequence. Oh, before we close out this little uh, blink and you miss it section, there's also Kevin Corrigan right in the beginning who was in another episode we did, Goodfellas. And Larry King really wanted to be in an Exorcist movie. And uh, he's then the right in the beginning too when Kinderman and Father Dyer uh, are in a bar scene. Lots of little fun roles, little little Easter eggs that are fun to look for in this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, let's close out the the last part of this discussion just on the release of The Exorcist 3 because this is a movie that not a lot it, – It's I think the, this movie gets a lot of respect now. When you see those lists, you know, when you're on Facebook and it's like top 10 best sequels that you've never heard of or seen or something, you know, The Exorcist 3 always shows up. I think a lot more people have seen this movie and like it than – I think some people get give it credit for. Otherwise, it wouldn't have warranted such a really nice release by Scream Factory, you know, where they, it's like a double disc and loaded with special features. And, you know, they reassembled the the director's cut, you know, out of old VHS, you know. Like dailies. Dailies, that were... yeah. Um, kind of like painstakingly put it together. And... You know that that took a lot of work. So there, there's definitely you know th- they wouldn't have done all that if there wasn't a, a fan base for this. And when it came out, it, it didn't bomb or anything. You know, like a lot of the movies we talk about, like God, just like No Love, and uh, you know, a good example of a movie that we reference, like The Thing, that were like critics hated it and nobody went and saw it. This movie, uh, you know, wasn't really critically panned. I mean, certainly it, it would a lot of people like had to compare it to the original to say like, you know, it wasn't quite as scary or effective as the original, but it didn't really get killed by critics and it made its money back, you know, it made a profit over the last 30 years. It's, it's definitely gained a, like a, like a pretty decent cult following. Yeah. I think Blatty said he didn't realize that people connected with it as much as he did until he saw it on like what you said, like a list of top 10 movies, greatest horror movies of all time and he just was like huh really well that's great (laughs) um but i i think that if anything the cult following and continuing to grow cult following is just out of a sheer like people just don't know about it or they just haven't taken the time to explore the sequels past the original exorcist or you know they know the newer exorcist movies that are have been in the 2000s sometimes you know you look back and you see exorcist 3 from 1990 it's not going to grab you i don't really know if legion would have grabbed me either though my guess is if it was called legion it would have gotten more respect in the long run but it probably wouldn't have made any money like probably no one wouldn't saw a movie called legion in 1990 um, unless they built like a just amazing campaign for it but yeah, it's it's one like again. If you haven't seen it, you know, really, this is one where I, I really push for people to check it out. If you, you know, and especially if you like The Exorcist, if you're a fan of The Exorcist and you haven't seen The Exorcist three, oh yeah, you know, I would like stream it, you know, immediately and you know, or watch The Exorcist because this is a, 
a good one to one night watch The Exorcist and then the next night or on the same night. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're, if you're maniacs like we are, you know, you'll <laughs> do, do, do it all in one night. I've, I've definitely done that. It's true. And as of right now, Exorcist 3 is streaming on Amazon Prime and Tubi. So if you have either one of those services, you can check it out yourself. I described this to my mom the other day. And she loved The Exorcist and, you know, told me about how she was forbidden to see it when it came out in the theater. And I told her the the plot to this one and she just she stopped for a second and thought, you know, that kind of sounds like I mean, I love The Exorcist, but that's like a whole different movie. And it really is. It, I mean, it is connected to the original, but it feels like a standalone movie in the greatest way. So that's a good place to stop. Uh, our discussion on Exorcist 3. We'll come back for some final thoughts uh, before we end the episode, but let's move on to our picks of the week. Lindsay, you uh, went with Child's Play 2, which is a, a sequel that I really enjoy. What can you tell me about that movie? Well, periodically, there's a sequel that doesn't suck, and we've had an entire episode about that. So Exorcist 3 got me thinking about how much I loved another sequel that was also celebrating its 30th anniversary, and that is Child's Play 2. I even think it's just as good as the original, but I'm not going to sit here and compare the two. I love the original director, Tom Holland, but suffice it to say, they make a great double feature together. Child's Play 2 needs zero setup because it picks up right where the first one ends, though it came out two years later. The depressed and traumatized little Andy, who no one believes, played by Alex Vincent, was plagued with the good guy brand doll named Chucky, coming after him in order to do this supernatural body swap. Chucky's been reanimated back to life. It seems like a great idea, right? The good guy company is trying to save some face after getting some bad press after this whole ordeal with Andy, and for some reason are reassembling the original Chucky doll after it was set on fire and dismembered. As you might guess, this isn't going to go well. Chucky electrocutes someone in the first five minutes, and this little vicious doll is free to set up and stalk down Andy to try to swap bodies so Chucky can be a Pinocchio-style real boy. One thing I love about the sequel is how quick it moves. There is just no lag time. Part of that reason is because the original storyline was cut that involved Andy's mom and the original detective in the first installment of the story. Their roles were completely cut due to budgetary restraints, so that meant the whole story really fell onto little Andy, who, in this sequel, is now placed in a temporary foster home until his mom is out of a psych ward. You know, because no one believes her about a murderous two-foot doll inhabiting the soul of a local Chicago serial killer. The practical special effects of Chucky always looked super awesome to me. And of all the talking puppetry type movies, director John Lafayette really nailed the attention to detail in the sequel. Having Brad Dorif, our serial killer from Exorcist 3, record his dialogue as Chucky and then have it played back on the set for the actors to react to was just brilliant. That way, everything, effects included, should theoretically be able to be captured right there, right in front of the camera. And Dorif's unmistakable voice is really forever immortalized as Chucky. And even though he's a very talented actor, it's hard to unhear him as that terrifying voice of Chucky. There's also a cool aspect I never really thought of until these last few times through. A charred up Chucky is cleaned and reanimated right in the beginning of the film at the very plant he was created in. And this is also where he meets his horrific demise. So like full circle, right? 
The first child's play is pretty darn scary at times. The stalking killer thing is terrifying, even when it comes from the form of a child's doll, especially when it's supernaturally unstoppable. And for the sequel, it still harbors a hardcore creepy stalker killer vibe, but it amps up that slasher factor. But Chucky does make me laugh a couple times, I will say that. He's much more sarcastic, cussing little jerk of a villain. Sometimes, you know, that continues in a franchise. But like Freddy Krueger, you know, this is where the humor element starts for Chucky. Where Christina Lee, who plays Kyle, the older foster kid staying in the same home as Andy, where Chucky is forcing her to drive at knife point. I think I laugh more through that scene than I'm supposed to. But I, I really like that scene. I'm not laughing at it, but for some reason it's funny to me. Speaking of that supporting cast, though, Christina Lee is another one of my favorite ladies from the 80s. Her strong-jawed, chain-smoking, hard-ass teen really isn't playing that dummy blonde girl. She's a supportive character and not dismissive of Andy and is quick on the uptake when she realizes Chucky is indeed very much alive. Supporting cast, we've got Garrett Graham, Bud the Chud himself, and English actor Jenny Agater play Andy's foster family, while Grace Zabriskie, Laura Palmer's mom in Twin Peaks and many, many other films, is also the head of the foster facility. And of course, all fall victim to Chucky. And if you also have a deep loathing for the teacher slash sparkle motion dance mom in Donnie Darko, Chucky teaches her a worthwhile lesson with a bike pump, I'll tell you that much. I don't want to totally ruin the ending, but man, it's a good one. The whole way through, it's a nail biter. It's a classic style horror movie ending where you know you can't trust that it's actually over until those credits roll. All in all, this is a straight-up slasher flick that would be fun to see in a theater. It's a legit serial killer movie that hits quick and to the point. The original Child's Play is a great story and setup, and this sequel is a fantastic continuation of great scares. An RIP to the film's director, John Lafia, who did actually pass away just earlier this year. It's really undeniable how lean of a movie Child's Play 2 is. Uh, watching it recently, it gives you all the, you know, all the goods from Child's Play 1, but kind of moves things along faster and, and doubles down on the action. Yes, it certainly does. All right, Justin, let me hear about this horror pick of the week from you. So once again, I have a pick of the week that is going to sound like I'm bashing it more than I'm praising it. Oh, man. Which uh, has, has happened a few times. I don't mean to come off that way, but it's like I'm only saying this in relation to Exorcist 3 because the first power, the movie I chose for my pick of the week, is kind of like the dumb version of Exorcist 3. It follows a police detective who's m- much younger, played by Lou Diamond Phillips, who has always had like the, the, the sort of boyish good looks. Even at 28, he looks like he's like 19 years old playing like a police detective. But he, I think Lou Diamond Phillips has always had this kind of like charm in the way he plays the character. It it's always uh, keeps me interested. And in, I, I, I've always loved Lou Diamond Phillips. But he plays a detective who's trying to track down a serial killer called the Pentagram Killer, who's very similar to the killer in uh, Exorcist 3 and the Zodiac Killer. I think that, you know, another thing, another movie where they based something off the Zodiac Killer. The killer played by Jeff Kober, who's played a bad guy in like so many movies in the 80s and 90s. And he plays a really menacing serial killer who dabbles in the dark arts. And Lou Diamond Phillips is trying to catch him. He's aided by 
a psychic who's played by Tracy Griffith, who's uh, in one of my favorite horror movies, uh, Popcorn. They don't realize they're working together. They don't know each other. But once uh, the pentagram killer is, is caught by Lou Diamond Phillips, even though Lou Diamond Phillips is wounded, they catch him. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips gets a call from the psychic and she's like, you do not want this guy to be executed. You want him in life in prison, but you don't want him to be executed. And Lou Diamond Phillips kind of writes it off. You know, he pushes for the death penalty and, um, you know, it's, it's a movie. So time is really condensed. So like they're already executing this guy. It seems like, you know, in the very next scene, uh, like two weeks later by doing that because of his dabbling in the dark arts, he's able to get the first power, which is resurrection. Later on in the movie, we come to find out that he's given the uh, three powers that Jesus had. It's resurrection followed by teleportation, also followed by possession, which he uses to, in a sinister way, mess with Lou Diamond Phillips and, and Tracy Griffith's characters. You know, this is where the dumb part of the movie comes in. He gets the power of resurrection and he's like on his way to get the power that Jesus had, but instead of like, you know, going on where he could commit all these other heinous evil crimes, you know, for the devil, he decides to like focus all his energy on just like kind of making these two see things that aren't there and, you know, really ruining their day, not just killing them. He's just kind of like toying with them um, throughout the movie. And then at the end, it's sort of left open-ended. You know, we, we kind of see that he can much like in the exorcist jump bodies and, you know, he can possess somebody else. It's a dumb, fun movie. It's kind of like, like I said, it's, it's like the B movie version of exorcist three, but if you like Lou Diamond Phillips, you just kind of like strap in and you go along for the ride and you don't think about it too much after the movie's ended. I would say there's a there's a couple like legitimate scares in this movie. The main bad guy, he's able to have the ability to make them see things that aren't there. And those scenes are, are pretty freaky when he's like toying with them. Wild little trivial note is that the score was composed by a police drummer, Stuart Copeland. And it has like this kind of like weird little offbeat score that you wouldn't uh, expect out of a movie like this. So um, it kind of stands out a little bit. But this movie's not too hard to find. Um, it wasn't uh, currently streaming anywhere for free that I saw, but um, it is available on Amazon Prime. This sounds like one of those movies I get sucked into on a Sunday afternoon. It is a very Sunday afternoon kind of. Like, mm-hmm. and, and this is a movie that you can totally fiddle with your phone while you're watching because <laughs> it's just like 45 minutes of like the sort of the repetition of, of him just like kind of toying with these two. Yeah, I want to track this movie down. I wish it was streaming. I've got the DVD. I, I can loan it to you. All right. We got to we got to meet have a mask meet up soon. Anyway, maybe I can borrow it from you. Yeah. Well, those are our picks of the week, Child's Play 2 and The First Power. Uh, very uh, very fitting for Exorcist 3 connection. Uh, very uh, demonic trio of movies to, to watch during the month of October. Yeah, we really went the supernatural route. I don't think, yeah, we didn't plan on that at all. How do you come back from that, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I think we need some lightness. Might be time. We got to find some light in the darkness. So I don't know what to expect as always, <laughs> but uh, we'll see if that actually happens. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. 
Is this hand shocked? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. This is going to be a little different than normal Murray moments. Maybe some of you know through just common knowledge or maybe these moments, but Billy and his eight siblings grew up in a very Irish Catholic home. And Billy's sister, Nancy Murray, has been a Catholic nun since just a year after graduating high school. You're a Scorpio, Nancy. You can't do this, their brother Brian told her after she'd made her decision to enter her new life path. Indeed, it's true. No one in the family was a fan of Nancy becoming a nun. Though they were all devout Catholics, the Murray family certainly had a reputation for being loudmouth, troublemaking jokesters. Imagine taking these nine cut-ups to church all together, but Mom Lucille kind of liked it when they all went as a unit, but it didn't mean she wouldn't occasionally get fed up. When they got out of hand, Sister Nancy said, my mother would send us over to pray and say, I can't take you anymore, go over and talk it out with your guardian angel and come back to me when you're ready. Nancy remembers her mom being a big opponent of her decision, and although not completely on board either, Edward, the patriarch of the family, had this to say about Nancy entering a life devoted to God. They have rules and silence. They'll beg us to take her home. She loved the idea of social work, charity work, and helping kids, but Sister Nancy honestly thought she'd eventually get kicked out because of her mouth and she knew she couldn't stay silent. Like any Murray sibling would, she found a way around the silence one is supposed to observe while in a convent. The job she had was to do massive amounts of laundry, and mostly all of the other people she worked with were Latina women. Well, she took this time to practice her Spanish, and the other women didn't care, and she knew that they wouldn't tell on her. Finding that story out about her just really cracked me up and just fit so in place with what I would think a Murray sibling would do. Eventually, the Murrays came around to the idea of their sister and kind of second mom, becoming a nun, even though the, all the other Murray kids had just experienced nuns as strict disciplinarians all through school. Even though they accepted it, it didn't stop them from laying on that Catholic guilt. On one of the earlier family visits to see her, according to Sister Nancy, a four-year-old Joel, little, little Joel Murray, said, Nancy, you've got to come home. You don't know what this is doing to our family. You've got to come home. Now, Billy, he went for another angle. When a healthy bunch of the Murray brothers made the drive up to see Nancy in Adrian, Michigan, they parked outside the dorms where the Dominican sisters lived. According to one story from outside, Billy shouted up at the dorms, Nancy, we've got a bag packed. You can leave. Come on. We'll drive away. We'll take off. Nancy. I've heard Nancy, Bill, Joel, and I'm sure the rest would concur that the family dinner table was their first performance stage. Now, the object was to get their father to laugh, even though most of the kids thought that their mom was probably the biggest cut-up of them all. The performance apple didn't fall far from the family tree, either. Since 2000, Sister Nancy Murray of the Dominican Sisters has been traveling the world with her one-woman show about the inspiring story of Italian-Dominican St. Catherine of Siena, who cared for terminally ill patients and filled so many with wisdom and spiritual guidance during the 1300s. Billy and all of the Murray siblings have been to many performances of Nancy's over the years. She's even performed at some of their parishes. Early on, she said that Billy's given her tips on what he thought worked and if anything needed to be cut. Believe me, Sister Nancy said, the brothers are not afraid to critique you. 
Bill even inspired her to look beyond her work as St. Catherine and accept an invitation from another sister and drama teacher to work on other projects. Though St. Catherine of Siena is her most well-known show, she's also performed the tragic story of Sister Dorothy Stang of Notre Dame, who fought for the rights of the poor and the environment, as well as Mary Potter, the woman who founded the Sisters of the Little Company of Mary. And then there was one time when Billy came to her performance of St. Catherine of Siena on his way back from the 2014 Toronto Film Festival while he was promoting his film St. Vincent. Billy, this is great, Sister Nancy told her brother. St. Vincent gets to meet St. Catherine. I'll tell you what, learning what I have, and I've already known some of this information, but I went pretty deep on this one. I tell you what, Sister Nancy Murray seems like a wonderful woman and is really a terrific actor. I've watched her videos before and I kind of went deeper this time, but if this subject interests you, there are certainly videos on YouTube of a lot of her performances. And it's funny, you see some of the traits in her as you do her other actor brothers. So that's five out of the nine siblings who were actors. John, Joel, Billy, Brian, Nancy. It's kind of nutty. In one interview, she did her brother Brian's voice, and it was seriously eerie how much she could make herself sound like the man. I know this wasn't totally all Billy related, but Nancy helped raise her kid brother Billy, and we've been talking about a movie with some hefty religious subject matter, so there was just no way I could pass this one up. And it's wild. I would love to hear her doing that impression. <laughs> it's weird. It's it's like, uh, I don't know if it's, you know how it seems like when you have a lot of siblings that there's where certain traits stop and then there's like another like variation like down yeah. the line. It seems like with Brian and Nancy, it's like they look similar and like you see a little bit of Nancy and Billy, but it's like Billy and John look more alike. And then you see how certain phases, you know, fade in and out of the lineage. Yeah, my, my wife comes from a big Catholic family, and she's got four sisters and a brother. And when she's talking about them, she's not trying to do an impression of one of them. You know, she's like, oh, and then so-and-so said it. But then she'll, like, channel their voice, you know? And I'm like, man, it was, like, eerie. And she's like, what? I was like, no. I mean, it was just like it sounded exactly like your sister, just the timbre and everything of your voice. Well, thanks so much for that Murray moment. Anytime. Uh, I know we both have a final thought on The Exorcist Three before we wrap this thing up. Yeah, I have, I have, I have two things. One. No, I only said one thought. Oh no, man. No, you can do two. You can do two final thoughts. Okay, I'll first one will be real quick. Just two um, half thoughts. <laughs> I forgot to mention when we were talking about how the ending was different, how the studio wanted it to be different. Well, there was technically the art director shot the scenes uh, of like where there was like major action happening and Blatty shot the scenes that were just dialogue between George C. Scott and Brad Dorff or Jason Miller. But all of the action stuff was shot by the art director and that entire crew that did that was a whole new crew that came in after everything had already wrapped. It was a whole new crew and just like fresh faces basically. And I think if you know that looking at it, you can kind of sense it a little bit, but I think it's just a little fun fact to throw in there. Do you want me to do my next one or do you want to do one? No, no, go, go <laughs> keep on going. All right. My last, my last final thought. If you listen to this podcast, you definitely have heard me talk about X-Files a time or two. Brad Dorff really channeled this character from Exorcist 3 in an episode from X-Files called Beyond the Sea in season one. Check it out. 
It is eerie. It freaked me out watching Exorcist 3 and knowing that episode so well. It's the exact same character. It's just weird, like down to the extremes that he can go. And then just like, I don't know, his performances are incredible. And I highly encourage you to uh, seek out that episode Beyond the Sea X-Files. Yeah, I got to check that out. Didn't you say that was on YouTube that him doing that role? Yeah, there are plenty of clips uh, from that episode. So yeah, if you don't want to watch the entire thing, plenty of clips, Brad Dorf, X-Files. All right, those were quick, right? Yeah, yeah, mine is super quick. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, Seven came out five years after Exorcist Three, but there's so many things that, that parallel these movies. You know, there's the serial killer who's, you know, killing people in like unspeakable, like horrible, like creative ways. There's like, you know, with a religious connotation going on for for the reasoning and then you know you have this older detective who's chasing the trail you know there's just there was I was surprised I you know I, I didn't do a lot of digging but I couldn't find too much that said you know there was a influence on seven from Exorcist 3 I don't know how long that seven script was floating around before it got made but I don't know. There's a lot of similarities between the two movies. I thought it was kind of interesting. I hadn't thought that until you brought it up the other day. And after watching it, after you said that, I can for sure see that. Who knows? Maybe somebody knows if they were influenced in writing that script. But uh, the parallels are there. Yeah. If you like Seven and you haven't seen Exorcist 3, I'd say, you know, give it a go. I mean, Seven is its own movie. I think Seven is a great, fantastic film that's really much darker than Exorcist 3, in my opinion. But did you have any other, like another? I wasn't trying to (laughs) restrict your... How many final thoughts I could have? Justin, you know me in regular everyday life. You know, my life is, is a constant final thought. All right. So for our next Halloween movie... Two more movies... We do. Are we? We're not going to say the second one, like the last one. We're just the next one, yeah. I feel like we can. Okay. Well, the next one that we have in line is favorite one of mine for a very long time. I can't wait to talk about it. Ginger Snaps. Yeah, I'm really glad we're doing this one. I'm glad that you're glad. I brought it up, and I'm I'm just glad that after you watched it, you were like, oh, hell yeah. Sort of rejuvenating werewolf movie. And what are we closing out the month with, Justin? We're close out October with the original Dawn of the Dead, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Whoa. So lots lots of good stuff coming up for the rest of October. So please uh, stick with us. Please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. We're on Instagram. If you want to check out old episodes, if you can't find them all on any of the platforms you can go to our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com there we also have uh, a lot of merch a lot of just uh, you know odds and ends of stuff um, available for purchase most most of it uh, movie related some of it not but uh, don't we also have uh, don't push pause air fresheners we do have air fresheners like what buttons koozies coffee cups if your car is stinking, get on don'tpushpausepodcast.com right now. Order you a, a air freshener. I think it's like uh, some sort tropical of like breeze? tropical berry breeze or something. <laughs> Have your car smelling good in no time. And all that money goes to helping us uh, build a bigger and better podcast for your ears. 
So please check us out. And if you want to reach us for any reason whatsoever, you can give us a holler at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. We always love uh, hearing from people. Let us know what you thought of an episode. Unless you uh, totally hated it, you know, (laughs) try to be uh, kind if you can. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks for listening, guys.